On the record, flips to the B-side. Good morning. I'm Claudine Zapp, and it's time to flip to the B-side. Today's show is all about revolutions, from Berkeley in the 60s to the peace movement now. I don't think we're going to see a traditional type of peace movement. Then it's on to revolutionary movements that haven't exactly caught on, from a made-up language intended to promote world peace to a struggle for independence being kept alive by East Bay taxi drivers. There's a lot of different ways I could help the movement. I say that because it's not dead. It might be dead in Punjab, but it's certainly not done here. The revolution's in our backyard, straight ahead as On the Record flips to the B-side. This month's show is all about revolution. What better place to do a little research than the UC Berkeley campus? Back in the 60s, Berkeley was at the heart of the free speech movement, then the anti-war movement. Our first stop, the Free Speech Movement Cafe. The walls are covered with images of the campus's free speech movement and its unofficial leader, Mario Savio. On one wall, in big bold print, is a quote from Savio. Dave is moved to read. This is the most famous Mario Savio quote. Um, there comes a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart, that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. Mario Savio's words inspired a student revolution. But before we get ahead of ourselves, what is revolution anyway? Producer Mia Lobel did a little homework, and here's what she learned. I started teaching a writing class this fall at Maybeck High School in Berkeley. We do an exercise in class called free writing. You put your pen on the paper and start writing. Whatever comes out, just don't stop. Your topic is revolution. You have 15 minutes. Go. What is revolution? The dictionary, in its own bloodless way, tells us this. 1. A turning or rotational motion about an axis. 2. An assertedly momentous change in any situation. 3. A sudden political overthrow brought about from within a given system, especially a forcible substitution of rulers or of ruling cliques. Revolution. To me, revolution means death. Death, because no one in their right mind is going to give up power. Rulers will not willingly give up a country without a fight. Would you? If you were in control of the country, would you? I've created my own revolution by revolting against my mom. When this revolution is over, I will decide at what time I'm home, who to speak with, and where I go. This revolution will tear me apart from my mom's control, hate, and anger. After this revolution, I will be my own independent person. Revolution is overinflated in our world. We are bombarded from childhood with stories of the weakling rebelling against the larger aggressor and winning. The idea that you should rebel is smashed into our head, as well as the idea not to breathe underwater. What would it be like? In the middle of an abyss, in the swirling mists of time, 
An egg the size of a dime began to hatch. As the twisted colors of red, blue, and purple broke apart, a creature poked its horned head out. The cries bombarded him with wave after wave, pleading angrily for his help, howling frenziedly with hopelessness, knowing a battle without him would be one lost. They, however, knew with or without him, the people would never overrun the corrupt government company Onnet. He didn't want to die for nothing. I see revolution as dramatic changes in the course of history. When I think about revolution, I think about U.S. history and the American Civil War. There are some nonviolent revolutions, like scientific revolution. It changed the way many people think. I'm running away. I run as fast as my legs can carry me. Through crowded city streets, through a hot desert. My feet pound against the ground with all the speed I can deliver. I don't look back. The trench to the left of me explodes as a mortar hits directly. Suddenly I hear the whistling of another one overhead. I jump out of the trench and run with my AK as fast as I can. I end up in a bush with a few others. We can hear the enemies advancing, crushing our revolution with the help of the US. Revolution. American, French, Russian. What is it when people jump into a stage ahead in technology? When people break away? I don't know really what it means, only that once it happens, something big has changed. Revolution is part of a teenager's daily life. We revolt against our parents without really thinking about it. We ignore our parents' suggestions and go on with our lives, hoping that one day we will win this battle. The battle that usually takes 18 years until we leave our father's home and construct a bigger revolution. A real revolution that would not just change our lives, but the lives of others. I will never be anything anyone wants me to be. I will revolt against group homes and their rules. I will never be institutionalized. I am a free spirit and I will never be kept down in life. All my hopes and dreams will come true. I don't care what I have to do to get there. I defy everything life throws at me. With espresso beans grinding in the background and students all around, we wanted to know if the images in the cafe were anything more than just wallpaper. Do you know a lot about the free speech movement, what it was about? Not at all. <laughs> Are you here because of the revolution or because of the coffee? Uh, for the atmosphere. Maybe a little of both. So you're here at the free speech movement cafe. Do you know what the free speech movement was? Something that happened uh, in the 60s about free speech. <laughs> Listen, Dave, catch the irony. The university has turned a movement into a marketing tool. The university has co-opted this movement, which was against the university, and is now, you know, selling lattes at the, at the free speech movement cafe. And now, instead of throwing themselves against the gears of the apparatus, the gears of the apparatus are grinding coffee beans for student consumption. 94% of Americans have come out in favor of the bombing in Afghanistan, according to a recent poll. That's put the peace movement in a tough spot, justifying its relevance. Tamara Keith reports. A week after the terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center and Pentagon at a peace rally in downtown Berkeley, it seemed more like a reunion than a response to the nation's new war. Wavy Gravy, Berkeley's own activist clown, wore a black clown nose to show that he was mourning. How many of you were out here during the Gulf War? I recognize a lot of faces. I was dressed as a, uh, a mutant dove. 
Uh, I still have that dove suit in the closet. I hope I don't have to break it out. Let's blow bubbles, not bombs, okay? Peace in. And then Wavy Gravy did blow bubbles, using a bubble wand shaped like an ice cream cone. For more than an hour and a half, mostly baby boom age speakers took turns standing in the bed of a pickup truck, belting out a wide range of messages. They talked about everything from racism to globalization and a whole lot in between. After the rally was over, everyone took to the streets, marching down University Avenue to the rhythm of several well-worn protest chants. Stop the war! Stop the hate! One, two, three, four! We don't want your racist war! It was a scene that Berkeley residents have seen countless times before. But somehow, this time, the chants and songs that worked so well in the past didn't have the same impact. The protesters barely filled half a city block as they marched, and public response was tolerant at best. Two weeks later, just hours after the first U.S. missiles were dropped on targets in Afghanistan, Bay Area peace activists took to the streets again. We're glad to see everyone here today, but it is a very sad day. It is a day that a new war has begun. And we are here to say that we are going to resist this war. Stop the bombing. Stop the war. Stop the bombing. Stop the war. Stop the bombing. This rally at Powell and Market Streets in San Francisco was dubbed an emergency response. But the response, even with bombs raining down on Afghanistan, hit much the same note as the Berkeley rally had. During the Gulf War, local activists held huge protests and even blocked Bay Area bridges in the name of peace. But tactics like that simply won't fly today. Now, even the most committed peace activists admit that in order to be effective, they're going to have to change their message and the way they get it out. I don't think we're going to see a traditional type of peace movement. Ted Lewis is coordinating peace efforts for global exchange. I see this as being a, a kind of um, movement that's going to happen in a much more quiet way. It's going to happen from people talking with their neighbors. The cause of peace won't gain popularity with mass protests. This time around, Lewis says it's all about word of mouth. Global Exchange founding director Medea Benjamin says peace activists, like herself, need to tread lightly when delivering their message. A lot of people who would normally have been supporting uh, and uh, stopping U.S. bombing of another country um, now, because of their intense feeling of anger, uh, really just have this sense of we want revenge. We have an opportunity to make a difference. Steve Friedkin runs Progressive Portal a Berkeley-based online activism site that has been a popular center for discussion since the attacks. Those of us in the peace community, I think, have an obligation to be more thoughtful, have a larger vision, to be more focused on the world we want to create, not just what we hate about things that are in the world today. When those airplanes flew into the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, the rules changed for the country, for the military, and for the peace community. The president says this will be a long war, and as it drags on, peace activists say they believe more people will begin to listen to their message. And maybe by then, they'll have a better idea of exactly what that message should be. For B-Side, I'm Tamara Keith.
The walking tour continues, and Tamara comes across another landmark. Oh, no, here it is. Come on, let's go. It's a small bronze plaque on the steps of Sproul Hall. Okay, someone want to uh, read the sign here? Yes, it says Mario Savio Steps, dedicated 1997. Do you think anybody here knows that these are the Mario Savio Steps? Well, people stand on these steps a lot. I imagine every once in a while they have looked down and noticed this before, and I'm sure it's on the tour, but as for the average person walking by, probably not. We decide to investigate. Katie and Lissa ask the questions. Excuse me, can we ask you a question for... Who is Mario Savio? A Mexican guy. An artist. I have no idea. I feel like I don't know, but I don't. He was the leader of the free speech movement at Berkeley back in the day. (laughs) Do you think of that, that like... His, um, the free speech movement is kind of alive today in Berkeley? No. (laughs) I think it's dead. (laughs) One cause that's definitely not dead is essayist Katie Shrout's quest for safety on the road. She's leading a one-woman revolution, and if you're not careful, she might get in your way. You've probably seen me on the freeways. I'm that absurdly dangerous driver whom you loathe and shake your fist at. You probably think of me as a maniac, but in fact, I'm a revolutionary. This is maybe not revolution in the textbook sense of the word, but in my mind it comes down to this. In a world of casual and careless drivers who easily turn and change lanes and drive over the speed limit without a thought to the danger, I'm the only voice of reason. I'm the only one who seems aware of the statistics. This is because I'm such an unusually sensitive and cautious person. I'm so unusually sensitive and cautious, see, that I'm compelled to brake abruptly if a squirrel skitters in a tree 15 feet away from the road, or if a pedestrian six blocks ahead steps into the intersection. I'm much too tender-hearted to make a left turn, until there is not one single car visible in the oncoming lane. In fact... I'd prefer it if someone on the radio announces, Well, this is amazing, but here in the traffic copter, we've noticed that there's been no one coming on San Pablo Avenue this entire week. I will sit smugly, thinking, You can honk at me if you want. You can make your obscene gestures, but I will not budge. I am superior. I am the star of my own personal driver safety video, and you all are a bunch of cautionary tales. Most recently, I'm unexpectedly given to passionate temper tantrums on the road. Essentially, I panic, break, and cease use of the gas pedal altogether. Think of it as a sit-in, if you will. You, the good people of the Bay Area, sit behind me and honk until you turn purple, and I raise my fist in anger. No, I will not participate in a corrupt system that so flagrantly defies safety rules. It can all seem terribly frustrating, I know. Most of you haven't reached a place yet where you can understand how noble my reasons really are. And granted, some of you may have to break suddenly to avoid hitting me, and many of you will try to pull violently around me. But it's not that I actually am any of those names you call me, or that I don't know how to drive. No, no. Fellow motorists. I've stopped there on the bridge for the sake of all of our safety. Long live the revolution.
there's a fleet of taxis covered with the slogan, Free Khalistan. These uniquely decorated cabs are owned and driven by Sikh immigrants who want an independent homeland for followers of their faith. It's a country that doesn't exist now, but which they call Khalistan. In India, the struggle for Khalistan has all but petered out. But here in the East Bay, this revolutionary movement is alive and well. Lissa Mudd reports. Parmjeet Sekhan's taxis are his soapbox. All five are orange and blue, the colors of the Sikh faith. They have huge stickers across the back windshields that say, India out of Punjab, Khalistan. He sees his taxis as free advertising for his movement. He says all he thinks about now is how to keep the movement going. Day and night, day and night, I 100% support the Khalistan struggle. Educate, give the paper, meeting, talking on the Khalistan movement. Give the information, Khalistan, Khalistan, Khalistan. Most Sikhs come from the state of Punjab in northwest India. Khalistan is the name they give to their homeland. Sekhan tries to explain Khalistan's struggle for independence to his passengers. All customers give the paper and uh, explain, I'm, and try explain, good explain, good explain. He hands out leaflets and gives away books with titles like India Kills the Sikhs. He's got an answer to almost any question. If anyone asks whether it's practical to create a teeny landlocked country, he'll list all the countries that are smaller than Khalistan. Albania and uh, Bahamas, Cyprus, Denmark, Belgium, Bermuda, Netherlands. The idea of an independent Khalistan has been around for a long time. But the movement for political autonomy really gained momentum in 1984. That was the year Indian Prime Minister Indira Gandhi ordered an attack on the Golden Temple, the holiest site in Sikhism. A few months later, after she was assassinated by her Sikh bodyguards, riots broke out and thousands of Sikhs were killed in vengeance. Then came 12 years of intense violence between the Indian government and Sikh separatists. Though the movement has quieted significantly in India, here in the East Bay it's alive and well. And it's not just exiles and other recent immigrants who brought the cause with them. Some young second-generation college students are just as passionate about Khalistan, even though many of them have never even been to Punjab. There's a lot of different ways I could help the movement. I say that because it's not dead. It might be dead in Punjab, but it's certainly not dead here. Kavaldeep Gardeval is a 22-year-old UC Berkeley student from Fremont. If you believe in something strong enough, you should be willing to lay down your life for it. For now, Kavaldeep says he can make the greatest impact by educating people here in the U.S. But if by some miracle Punjab actually did break free from India, he says he'd be on the first plane there. It would be a sort of homecoming, you know. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't expect it to happen anytime soon. Taxi owner Parmjeet Sekhan and one of his drivers, Harvinder Singh, are parked across the street from the Ashby BART station in Berkeley. They've taped big pictures of torture victims all over a minivan cab. Harvinder Singh points to one of them. You see this picture? They have no nose, no eyes, nothing. Sekhan and Singh know that driving around with graphic photographs like this on their taxis would be bad for business. 
But they say these shocking images are an effective way of getting the message across. Sekon tells the story behind a particularly disturbing one. This guy is a very good speaker. 100% follow the religious. Sikh religion, 100% follow, not a terrorist. He says Khalistani activists like this one were often tortured or killed by the Indian police for speaking out. Police give the warning him, you stop, quiet, no speeches against the government, against India. And this guy is no stop. And uh, one time, the Indian police, Breaking into Hindi, Sekon says the police boiled him alive. Sekon pulls up his left pant leg to show a scar just above his knee. He says he was shot twice for writing articles and making pro-Khalistan speeches. His family was tortured, but the United States gave him asylum and his family escaped. That was in 1989. He's been driving taxis ever since. Sekon says his own fleet of orange and blue taxis were a gift from God. Now he says he's praying for something more. I want America hamari help showing up the globe. He says he wants America to help Punjab become independent so that Khalistan will have a place on the world map. In the meantime, Sekon says he plans to keep the revolution alive here in the East Bay, spreading his message every time someone rides in his cab. For B-Side, I'm Lissa Mudd. We walk off campus, a few blocks down Telegraph Avenue, to get to our final destination, People's Park. With the afternoon sun beating down on our heads, the B-side crew waxes philosophical. People, especially in Berkeley, are sort of waiting for something to fight for, because it's part of being in Berkeley. Like, if you're not fighting for something, you're not, you know, living the Berkeley life. And now it's like, kind of a given. Everybody's got something. For me, at least, there's also a sense of disappointment, because I guess I have been waiting for, like, our Vietnam, something that would be, like, completely morally black or white issue where you could take to the streets and it would be really obvious that you were doing the right thing. But now we've got this weird war where it's like, yeah, I agree with the idea behind it, but not what's really happening, and I don't want to take to the streets about it. So it's also this huge letdown of, like, you, you want to have that 60s moment in your life, and here it is, and, well... I think I'll wait for the next conflict. This isn't a clear-cut issue for me. I don't know that I'm completely 100% about saying, no, there must be peace, because I, you know, it's not that clear for me, but it was in the 60s. In Vietnam, no matter how many people died who were Americans, they were like American soldiers, and they were like in Vietnam, and we sent them there. They weren't 5,000 people in a building you know, going to work that day, and that's what makes it really hard for all of us who think that you know, we're waiting for our peace moment to take to the streets because we know that our friends died. It could have revolutionized the world, but instead it barely left the ground. Esperanto is an artificial language that was supposed to bring about world peace. It's completely made up and combines pieces of Spanish, French, Italian, and a few other languages. Dave Gilson met some local Esperanto speakers who, despite the odds, are keeping Esperanto at the tip of their tongues. Mi estas Lana. estas vi? Mi estas Mina. estas vi? Lana Schaefer and Mina Kim are native Esperanto speakers. Though Lana grew up in Russia and Mina grew up in Southern California, both of their fathers were Esperanto teachers, so their families spoke Esperanto around the house. Yes. 
Lana and Mina are now juniors at UC Berkeley, where they teach an Esperanto class twice a week. Today they're not just teaching vocab and grammar, they're trying to sell their mother tongue to their students. Mina explains the idea behind Esperanto. You can't be friends with people if you can't talk to them. Esperanto helps break down the language barriers between countries. Esperanto speakers like to brag about how easy it is to learn. They say you can learn it five times faster than French and ten times faster than Chinese or Arabic. Its structure is simple, it's completely phonetic, and best of all, it has no irregular verbs. And its alphabet sounds vaguely familiar. Esperanto was invented more than 100 years ago by a Polish doctor named Ludwig Zamenhof. Zamenhof thought that if everyone spoke a common language, maybe they would stop seeing each other as Poles or Germans or Jews and start seeing each other as human beings. While Zamenhof's dream of a global lingua franca never came true, his revolutionary language continues to attract new speakers, or Esperantists, as they call themselves. The Bay Area is home to a small but devoted community of Esperantists, like Miko Sloper, a math teacher from Berkeley. Mi nomo estas Miko Sloper. Sloper used to be head of the Esperanto League of North America, based in El Cerrito. Now I'm merely an Esperantist, which means that I speak the language, I use the language, I travel using the language, I have a lot of friends in Esperanto land. Esperanto land is around half a million people in over 100 countries. Most use the language as a way to meet and visit people around the globe. The Esperanto community is sort of like a country in diaspora. So we have people who have a secondary culture in this international culture, who live in virtually every country in the world. Like any other culture, Esperanto has its own novels, its own poetry, and its own music. There's even Esperanto hip-hop. Esperanto culture has something for everyone. Shortly after Sloper learned Esperanto, he heard that the Oakland Symphony was performing a choral piece in his new language. It's called La Coro Sutro, wonderful piece. So I called up the Oakland Symphony Orchestra guys and I said, I can sing pretty well and I know Esperanto. Uh, is there any chance I could come to some of your rehearsals? They say, come to the rehearsals, you join the bass section. And that experience of singing in Esperanto, it really changed my life. Most people who have heard of Esperanto either think it's dead or just some kind of joke. Its image hasn't been helped by the 1965 cult film Incubus, which stars a young William Shatner acting, if you can call it that, entirely in Esperanto. Back in Berkeley, Lana Schaefer and Mina Kim are thinking about the next generation of American Esperanto speakers. The other day we were actually talking about um, teaching our kids Esperanto and how we're going to be able to do it. Yeah. And so um, we were thinking up names <laughs> for we our kids. We want to name them Esperanto, be walking commercials <laughs> for Esperanto. So but it just shows how much it is a part of our lives.
Esperanto will need all the free advertising it can get to beat its real competition, another international language that's revolutionized the way the world communicates, English. But Esperantists have a saying, if you want to make money, learn English. If you want to make friends, learn Esperanto. En Berkeley, mi estás Dave Gilson. Gis Realdo. You've been listening to B-Side. Our crew this month, Dave Gilson, Mia Lobel, Katie Shrout, Lisa Mudd, and Emily Gunnison. Our senior producer is Tamara Keith. Theme music was composed by David Kaufman. For more about B-Side and its crew, check out our website at bside-radio.org. I'm Claudine Zapp.